0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Rise Together podcast. I am so excited about who we have coming on the show today. Charles Duhigg, he's an author, he's a reporter, he is a Pulitzer Prize winner, he is um, responsible for one of the most important books in my life called The Power of Habit. We've talked about it plenty of times, and he has just been, as someone who... Because of the way in him being a journalist and the way that he's used science to explain why people do things, he's been a massive, massive influence in my life in unpacking why I do the things I do, and more importantly, when I was stuck, why I did the things I did. Um, So he wrote this book. It's called The Power of Habit. We're going to have a conversation today all about habits, the science of habit formation, whether it's in your life or in your company. He also happens to have authored a book called "Smarter, Faster, Better." That's all about the science of productivity. If like you don't geek out about that, he went to Yale undergrad and Harvard Business School, so he's wicked smart. Uh, he's just a good dude. He's really, really smart and and knows how to talk about something that, once you understand it, will fundamentally change the way you think about why you do the things you do. He currently writes books and magazine articles for The New York Times Magazine, and The New Yorker, The Atlantic. He also hosts a show that we talk about at the end of this episode called How To on Slate Podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the guest of guests. I am so excited, Charles Dohig.
1: Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis.
0: And I'm Dave Hollis.
1: And we're married.
0: For like 15 years. And we have four kids. That's like a thousand kids. We've been foster parents to four kids as well. And we're running a business together. That's a lot of things. It is a lot of things. But we know that it's possible to have an exceptional relationship regardless of the stresses you have in your life. So, if you want some tips and tricks on how we get through all the things... This is Rise Together. Uh, I just said off, uh, off camera, off microphone, that if there were a list of people that I could have a dinner with... I'm a massive sports fan, I'm crazy about movies, I'm deep into politics... I would choose Charles over any athlete living or dead and almost every politician. I mean there's a couple honestly Charles that would fight I don't, I don't know, you for Obama. A seat. Like
1: I would I would I would definitely have dinner with Obama. That, that seems like it'd be a pretty interesting dinner. But there's
0: like <laughs> I don't know how much people who are listening are familiar with your work, but I I have to say like I am a person who has been skeptical of almost every tool that could have helped me get out of my way through most of my life. And my entry into this like, hey, I'm stuck, I'd like to get unstuck journey of mine required that I go through someone who could talk to me uh, through the lens of like science. Like I wanted to understand why I was doing the crap that was ruining my chance to show up well for myself, for my wife, for my kids. And there was something in The Power of Habit, which you wrote eight years ago and is still the first book that I recommend to any human being who is like, man, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do because of the, just like the biology of it all, because of like the science of it all. It's a tee up for me to ask this question because when I heard this, this is why I dove in. How much of what we do is stuff that we're not really conscientiously
1: even aware of? So, it, well, well, thank you for those kind words to, to start. And, and that's a great question because I think that that's the thing that shocked me too. So according to studies, 40 to 45% of what we do every day is a habit, not a decision. And and it's, it's hard to actually like r- r- grapple with that number, right? Because it means that when you're talking to your kids – That half of what you say, you're kind of saying on autopilot and you're not really thinking about it. When you're talking to your wife, when you're at work, when you're replying to emails, when you're getting to work, when you're deciding what to eat. And yet, if you look back and actually think about what you did yesterday, you see how true it actually is, right? We tend to remember the decisions we made because in part our brain actually pays attention to the decisions. It sort of turns off when we're in the middle of a habit. And yet, if I was to actually record what you said to your kids on a daily basis – Half of it is stuff where, like, you're just saying it automatically, right? You know, I love you. To, how was school today? What did you do? Don't do that. Be nice to your sister. Like, all of that is stuff that just happens because there's a trigger in your environment. And you're not really engaged in what you're saying to them, which, of course, is tragic because because the reason we have kids is because we want to talk to them, right? We want to have this yeah. relationship with them. Well,
0: what's, I think what's wild for me or where, like, my, like the light bulb goes off is, like, Two and a half years ago, I I mean, we talked about this on the episode of the show that we did of yours called How to, which is an amazing podcast on Slate Podcast. You have to go listen to it. It's amazing. But I found Thank myself you. I found myself like super stuck. And I was trying to get to the bottom of why I was doing the things I was doing. And then I find out that almost half of the things that I'm doing, I am not conscient like I'm not conscious of. I'm not conscientiously actually doing that thing. It's just a thing I've always done when that situation has presented itself. And so there's this idea, this idea of a loop that you can explain way better than I can, but for someone who's not even familiar with the idea of like the science of a habit, can you just break down
1: sure, the cue, absolutely. the routine, the reward? Yeah, absolutely. So so there's this part of our brain known as the basal ganglia that every animal has it, it, throughout history. And and the basal ganglia is one of the oldest parts of our brain. What it basically exists to do is to create habits. Essentially, species cannot, cannot evolve unless they have the ability to create habits. And when you think about it, this makes a lot of sense because if you had to decide how to take a step every single time, if every single time you passed an apple or a rock on the ground, you had to sit there and think about which one you should eat and which one you shouldn't eat. It would be so cognitively taxing that you would never get anything done. You would never, um, you know, become a hunter or invent fire or, or video games. <laughs> and so this part of our brain evolves called the basal ganglia that exists to create habits. And the way that it does it is by creating a neurological structure that's associated with a habit. And we tend to think of habits as one thing, as a behavior. But that's not actually what a habit is. A habit is actually three things. And this is known as a habit loop. A habit is a cue, which is like a trigger for an automatic behavior to start. And when your basal ganglia sees that cue, what it does is it basically says to the rest of the brain, stop paying attention. I'm going to take over now on an almost subconscious level. And when I see that cue, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the next part of the habit loop, which is a routine, this behavior that feels kind of automatic. And the reason why the basal ganglia has learned to associate that cue as a trigger for a certain routine or certain behavior is because it has learned that it always delivers a reward. And so cue, routine, reward, these are the three parts of a habit. You know, everyone from like Aristotle to Oprah has talked about habits, right? And they usually always focus on the behavior, on the routine. But what we now know is that it's these cues and these rewards that really shape how and why we behave the way that we do. And so if you can learn to recognize those cues and rewards, if you can learn to to influence them, then you can start to change these habits, these things that happen nearly automatically in your life, which is essentially a choice you made at some time. And then you just stopped making the choice but continued acting on the behavior because it delivered a certain reward when you were exposed to a certain cue.
0: So good. I, I talk about this journey for me in leaving this thing I knew for this thing I needed, this like certainty that I had been really anchored to in a job that was very conventional and afforded us like both provision and status and a whole host of things for the pursuit of what we're doing now. And this jumping out of certainty for the guarantee of uncertainty was full of triggers for me. I mean, like there was a trigger every moment, whether it was in identity or in how Rachel and I work together every day or how me owning things in an environment that has us on podcasts and in live streams talking really honestly about stuff triggered my insecurities or my worry of what people might think. And yeah, I, I really like I, the the biggest like habit loop that I had to try and tackle over the last couple of years for myself was the way that alcohol was just a part of how when anxiety was a trigger that came through one of these things, I would have a drink that was the routine to provide a reward, mute or yeah. or you know make some of that anxiety go away, and it really took me understanding when I was triggered to preempt what was a very thoughtless reaction. It was very much just like the machine is working. The machine will now open a drink because the machine was triggered by something in the insecurity or imposter syndrome or whatever it might be kind of world. And I'd like to make that feeling go away. When I now feel it, I, you know, instead of grabbing something to drink, I put on running shoes and I, and I go run and, and exercises become the thing that I replace one of the ways I was able to be a little more proactive about identifying when the trigger was coming was by really spending time with I, I don't remember how you describe it exactly, but like the the times when you tend to be triggered, whether it's your location right. or your time or like talk a little bit if like if someone is listening and they're like, okay, I understand that there is a loop, but how the heck do I preemptively engage in a Absolutely. conscious behavior? How
1: do, how, right? do I, how do I diagnose it? Right, that's the hard question. And let me ask: back before, back before you decided to stop drinking, back when 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 drinking was a problem for you, but it was a problem that you had not acknowledged. If I had asked you what was the, if I had asked you when you have a drink, like if I had asked you, so what's the trigger for having a drink? What would you have told me?
0: I I would have just said it's a thing I do at the end of a long day. I wouldn't have okay. probably diagnosed it as having been something to remedy the way I was feeling insecure or out of my depth or uneasy with my identity shift. But right. I can, now I can see it very clearly. But at the time, because it was just a part of what I was doing every single night, it was just what I did every single night.
1: Yeah. and And if I asked you – Why do you drink? Like, like, what's the reward? But if I just said, you know, why do you have a drink at the end of the day? What would you have told me?
0: To smooth the rough edges off that day, to to relax, to right, to like transition from you know what was a thing where I was on to a thing where I'm now you know transitioning into
1: being off. Yeah, right. You get to kind of like take take a breath and relax. And so, so this this is a great example because because this is exactly what happens with most people is that. They oftentimes have no problem identifying a habit that if they're not willing to say it's a bad habit or a habit they wish they could change, it's at least a habit that, like, they know on some level, like, eh, this is something that, like, I wish I had a little bit more control over, right? I'm doing this thing, and I don't think it's a problem because it's not like you were, like, stumbling into work drunk. But but this is a thing that, like, I, on some level you understand, like, oh, I have less control over this than I'd like to. And so, so oftentimes when you ask people who are at that level, they're not, they're not saying this is a problem, but it's just something that they want to address. When you ask them what triggers it, when they do that thing, what they'll usually do is they'll usually look to the, to the most obvious kind of cue for them. So for you, that was the time of day. You were having this drink whenever you come home from work at the end of the day. And, and here's the thing about cues is that almost all cues fall into one of five categories. It's usually time of day, right? So that's a pretty good one. Or it's, um, it's a certain emotion that someone, that people feel, or it's the presence of certain other people, or it is a, um, behavior that has become ritualized or wait, what am I missing here? Location. Um, I'm sorry. Location. Oh, right. Or, or, or a specific location. Right. So it's, it's, it's one of those five things. Now, the thing is that oftentimes, it's very easy for us to say what we think the cue is. So so in your case, you would say, oh, I think the cue is a certain time of day because I'm doing it when I get home from work. Now, if you had just stopped there, you would be making a mistake, right? Because, because it turns out that for you, the cue was something else. It was this certain emotional feeling. But the thing is that life is complicated. It's hard to see what cues are. Sometimes – Sometimes a cue has two or three components. And so the way to figure out what the cue for a habit is, is to sit down and literally on a piece of paper, write down those five things I just said, location, time of day, presence of certain other people, uh, particular emotion, a behavior that has become ritualized. And whenever you feel an urge, like the urge to have a drink, you just write down all those five things. It takes like you know 15 or 20 seconds to do. And what you find is that in two or three days, you have a much better sense of what your cue is. This is actually, in psychology, referred to as cue awareness. And the reason you're doing this is because the cue for you might have very well been a time of day, right? It might have been that the craving hit you when you got home from work. But as you start writing down your emotions, you'll see another pattern, which is, actually, when I get home from work, I'm feeling kind of anxious. Yeah. And as all you have to do is draw your attention to that, and suddenly you're like, oh, actually, you know what? That anxiety... That actually feels more important to me than the time of day. Like sometimes when I'm at work and it's noon and I'm super anxious, I feel like having a beer with lunch. So actually that that emotional sensation is much more powerful than the time of day as a cue. And here's the interesting thing is that once you become aware of cues, you actually become even more aware of them on a day-to-day basis. For sure. So, There's this thing called simplified habit reversal therapy where the first step that they do, and you do this for people who, for instance, have like bad nail-biting habits, is they tell them just carry around a card, an index card, and every time you feel like biting your nails, just make a check on the card. Don't write anything down. Don't do the five categories. Just make a check because you're training yourself to start paying attention to cues. And once you're trained in paying attention to cues, you actually notice cues all the time all around you. And you figure out which ones are more and less impactful.
0: Well, what I, I mean, what I realized too, and this is the no duh of the entire conversation, is that without cue awareness, the hope of you addressing a habit that you don't like is an impossibility. Yeah. Because if you don't know what it is or when it happens or why it happens, the, the, like the possibility of replacing the activity that you're doing to that trigger or that cue – it feels, it it has felt to me like, man, that's just the thing that you, that you can't hope to have happen, uh, you know, happenstance. It's not going to just happen. You have to actively work to make it happen. It's, Absolutely. If, if you haven't watched, there is a fantastic TED Talk that you gave where I, man, totally related to the story of the cookie because there was for me in a certain time of day in an office where I'd lived in corporate America at like 3 p.m. every day. It was not a conscious thing. I just get up and start like walking through conference rooms where I knew big jars of peanut butter filled pretzels lived and I was not hungry. But there was something about the like – and again, I I don't want to steal people's opportunity to get to see you tell this great story. But man, I I felt the same thing. I was on a mission to connect socially and the like cue of that time of day was the thing that led me into thinking I wanted to have – a snack, when in fact, I was just looking to connect with someone to break up the time between lunch and the time that I went home. That's exactly right. Right? So like, talk a little bit about like how we think we're trying to solve with the routine a certain thing reward wise, but it may
1: in fact be Something, Something else, totally different. Right? So so this is the other important step of the diagnosing your own habit, which is once you figured out what the cue is, right, that in your case, having a drink, the cue is a little bit of time of day because you tend to do it when you come home from work, but much more a certain emotional state that you're feeling anxious. Then the question is, OK, so what reward is driving this behavior? Because if you don't know what reward it's providing, you really can't find an alternative behavior that's, that's healthier, better for you. So let me ask you this. When, when you would go home and have a drink, tell me exactly what would happen as soon as you start having that drink.
0: I, I would become less anxious. I mean, I did relax in some ways, but what I can appreciate, and again, like hindsight is so it's 2020 in this case, like I was not less anxious. I just was less aware of my anxiety. I wasn't less insecure about things. I just was putting blinders on the thing that was fully in my attention and in my consciousness. And so instead of processing it in like the, the thing I was hoping for was to make the anxiety go away. And I thought that the drink was doing that. But the drink wasn't doing that. The drink was just sh- like actually stuffing it down and allowing it to fester in a way that was making it, frankly, worse. And so I'd have to yeah. drink, right? I'd have to drink more to feel better about not having the anxiety or the insecurity than I had the day previous because I hadn't addressed the thing, this emotional state that was tr- provoking the trigger, right? It was bothering me.
1: So here, here's, here's, what I'm guessing was, hap- was going on, if I could see inside your brain, is I'm thinking it's probably three things. Number one, you have a, you have a cocktail. And, and first of all, there is a physical reaction where your muscles relax. You know, alcohol is a relax. Right, It causes our muscles to relax. And because we are physical beings, we oftentimes, when we feel our body relax, we assume that we are becoming more relaxed. Mm. Even Even if what's going on in our brain is not more relaxed, we associate physical relaxation with mental relaxation. And so alcohol does a good job of forcing physical relaxation onto you. The other thing that alcohol does is it's actually, and this is kind of Uh, counterintuitive, but because it's a relaxant, it allows us to be more energetic. So because we're less tense, we tend to exert energy more easily. And one of the things that we know about anxiety is that if you can exert energy, it actually will bring down your cortisol levels. It'll make you feel a little bit calmer to simply like go out and like, you know, that's why people like They exercise or they might get into like a a shouting match or they might go and like sort of like bounce their legs when they're anxious. The reason why they're bouncing their legs is because that physical activity, the release of energy actually provides a small amount of relief from the anxiety. The third thing that probably happens when you have a drink is you probably become more talkative and you become talkative in a way that's not really conversational, but is actually much more meditative. So if you, if you listen to people who have had two cocktails and how they speak, they usually are kind of stream of conscious rambling. Um, That's because what they're doing is it's, it's a meditative state where they're achieving kind of a meditate, this meditation through speaking. So, okay, so, so we know that there's these three rewards for, for you, right? You want a release of energy. You want something that feels meditative because that probably allows you to, to do some emotional management, and you want something that causes your body to literally just physically relax a little bit, unclench a little bit. So it makes perfect sense to me. Once you know that, once you know, okay, my cue is it's a certain time of day when I get home from work and that it's when I feel anxious, and what I have learned is that in order to manage that anxiety, I, I need a physical relaxation, like literally a muscle relaxation. I need something that's meditative and I need something that allows me to um, – Wait, what was the third thing I just said?
0: To actually create, create some energy, you know, like to
1: right, – uh, Right, release energy. So once you know that those are the three rewards – then it's clear that exercise is perfect for you, right? Oh yeah. Because because when you exercise, one of the things we know about exercise is that actually when you start exercising, your muscles relax, right? That's a that's a natural byproduct of exercise. You're actually exerting energy because you're going for a jog, so you're giving off that nervous energy that otherwise is going to get you to like bounce your knee. And most importantly, there's many ways to meditate. One of them is to sort of just stream of consciousness unspool through your mouth. Another one is to start running. You tend to get in the same same meditative place. So the the reason- It's
0: it's like therapy. Like the therapeutic nature of me on a run is unlike almost anything else. And I'm moving my body. And when I get done, I have a sense of accomplishing, you know, accomplishing something. So like the compounded effect was so- Yep. Also satisfying the things that I was looking for reward wise, but doing it in an unbelievably more productive way, because the thing that I was trying to satisfy, make this anxiety go down or away was actually happening instead of covering it up,
1: squashing it down and letting it exactly. you know, not be tended to and infest. Exactly. And, and instead of instead of just like basically doing talk therapy when you're drunk and not remembering what you've said. Now you're going and you're kind of doing this inside your own head while you're sober and you're exercising and you've got endorphins there so you're feeling good, you're releasing endocannabinoids which are the neurotransmitters that are associated with a positive feeling. The, I think for most people saying, oh, actually a, habit, a drinking habit and a running habit are exactly the same, that seems ridiculous to most people until you break it down. And you say, no, actually the reward from drinking for dave was these three things and it turns out that running delivers the exact same reward and once you know that you can change the habit i i would imagine well let me ask you so how long have you been running for
0: i've been running i mean i've been running for a handful of okay. years but i have been running in replace of alcohol for almost a full year 11 months now of time not a single drink and almost a thousand miles of running on the and road. how
1: how tough is it when you get home how tough is it at this point to like lace up your shoes and go out
0: it is as natural as grabbing a drink was before. And I mean, it's truly just become the thing. And
1: that's the most important part, right, is that that you don't have to use willpower to run at this point because it's become a habit. That cue and that reward have become so associated in your brain with running rather than drinking that when you get home, your basal ganglia takes over and it says, okay, put on the shoes. Let's go. I know exactly what's coming. The basal ganglia makes it easy. It makes it automatic. And that's kind of the magic of understanding. That's why it's called the power of habit, right? Is because once you understand the structure of habits, once you learn to see the habits around you and in your own life and in other people's lives, then it's like somebody has given you like this screwdriver to start fiddling with the gears and making it easy to behave how you want to behave.
0: Yeah. What's interesting too is there's this idea that you talk about called a keystone habit, which I can tell you in my life there have both been positive keystone habits and negative keystone habits. And a keystone habit is just this idea that like one habit creates a chain reaction of other good habits in your life. So for me, exercising, yep, it was helping with my anxiety, but it also gave me more energy and affected the way I was eating. It helped my sex drive. It helped my mood and my mindset. And just like, there were a whole bunch of great things. But if I were to think of drinking as a keystone habit, there were also a whole host of very negative things that were happening as a part of that keystone habit. Talk, I mean, there are sure plenty of different examples, but what is it like our morning routine is like such an important thing in part because of how the keystone habit of a morning routine unlocks so much of the value that we end up having for the rest of the day. Just, will you describe a little bit in a better way than I just did what a keystone habit is and why it's important to
1: identify the big ones? So, so what we know is that some habits seem to be more powerful than others. Some habits, when they change, set off a chain reaction that seemed to change other patterns in people's lives. So you mentioned exercise, which for many people, exercise is a keystone habit. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, when someone goes for a run in the morning and they start running regularly, if you ask them, like, think back to the last time anyone who's listening to you went for a run and ask yourself, was it harder or easier to eat healthy that day? And the answer always is easier, right? Like for some reason, you go for a run, your legs feel kind of sore when you get to the cafeteria, and you pick up a salad rather than like a hamburger. And, and that doesn't necessarily make sense on the face of it, but we've just totally accepted that that's true. What's interesting is that there's these two researchers, Oten and Cheng, who looked at other things that happen when people start exercising. And they found that on average, when people start an exercise habit, not only do they do their eating habits change, they eat more healthily. They also – their spending habits change. They're more likely to – they're less likely to use their credit card on a day when they went running. They are on average more likely to procrastinate less at work. They on average will start doing the dishes 20 minutes earlier in the day. Now, this doesn't make any sense, right? Like, nobody goes for a run in the morning and thinks like, oh, I'm definitely going to keep my Amex in my pocket today. <laughs> but but there's <laughs> something about exercise that for many people, it becomes this keystone habit. It changes other patterns in their lives. But what's interesting is that's not true for everyone. So, for people who were high school athletes, for people who are accustomed to thinking of themselves as athletic, and then for whatever reason, they they just stop for a couple of years, right? They have a baby. They – have a new job, they stop working out, and then they pick up exercise again, for those people, exercise tends not to be a keystone habit. It's an important habit, but it doesn't create this whole change in their life. And the reason why is because they've always thought of themselves as an athlete. Ah. And so when they return to exercise, all it does is reinforce their self-image. Now, for other people, people who weren't athletes in high school, people like myself, who, for instance, like basically didn't exercise for a long time, And when the idea of exercise came up, like, seemed kind of irrationally scary to me, right? Like, I'm going to look like an idiot while I'm running. I don't even know what path to take. I don't know what shoes to wear. For people like me, when I start exercising, it changes everything. And the reason why is because it changes my self-image, particularly on a subconscious level. When I get up and I go for a run in the morning, and when I've done that three times in a week, I start thinking of myself as the kind of person – who can make themselves get up and go for a run. And that kind of person, that doesn't that person doesn't buy like dumb stuff at the, at the the grocery store and pull out their credit card. That per, that kind of person doesn't eat eat hamburgers. That kind of person eats salads, right? That kind of person gets their dishes done earlier in the night. What we know about keystone habits that are really powerful is they are powerful because they change how we see ourselves. There's kind of two versions of ourselves that exist in our brain. There's the one we decide to have and the one that we create based on observation of what we actually do. So we might tell ourselves, I'm the world's best dad. And I can come up with tons of reasons why I'm the world's best dad. But part of my brain is watching how much time I actually spend with my kids. And if I'm not spending enough quality time, the other part of my brain is saying like, you know what? You're kind of a liar. You're not the world's best dad. I, I, I can see the truth. And when I change my habits and I start actually behaving like the world's best dad, That's when I suddenly start to believe that I am the world's best dad, or I believe that I am the kind of person who can go for a run in the morning, or I believe that I am the kind of person who can save money.
0: So good. I love that. When we start to
1: change our habits, we change how we see ourselves. And that's when it becomes a keystone habit and sets off this chain reaction.
0: By the way, like I, I have been victim to this very thing about like my idealized version of who I am as a dad and who I really am because of life as a dad. And so instituting things like a set time when we get together as a family to eat dinner or creating some hard limits on screen time or you know, like things that are about the intention of how we come around the table or how we like actually connect without technology, they are, yep, achieving something that's rewiring how I see myself as a dad to these four kids. But also there are these other rippling byproduct benefits of When you actually have more connection, you're creating in your kids, people who will just do better in school, have more emotional control. Like like, there are some other cool things that end up coming of it and you get to feel like you're a good dad. Like
1: win-win. That's exactly right. And, And the thing to remember that's like really important about habits kind of on the meta level is a habit forms through repetition. And repetition only occurs when we're in a stable environment. So one of the things that's interesting, for instance, about like why it's easier to to create new habits when you're exercising rather than drinking is that when you're exercising, you tend to have a much more stable life than when you're drinking. When you're drinking, you're basically like tired. You sort of lose moments of time. You're acting irrationally. When you're exercising, you kind of have to build your life in a way that where you're like, okay, I have this 30 minutes. I know where my shoes are. I'm going to have enough time to shower afterwards. And so I think for our kids, that's really important. Like when we're trying to teach our kids how to develop their own habits, one of the things that we can do for them is create these stable environments because your brain pays attention to everything, right? Your brain is looking to figure out what gives you rewards and what gives you punishments. And if you're not getting a reward the same way from the same behavior day after day, it just takes your brain that much longer to learn, learn how to create the good habit So the more stability that we create for our families and for ourselves, the more we're basically giving our brain like like a, a, like a speedier lesson in how to control itself and do the things we want it to do. So real.
0: So we often talk on this podcast about the importance of individual humans in relationship coming into that relationship as whole humans themselves. And so this application of Good habits are as much a thing for you as a human who's listening to this that is in partnership with someone else as it is for you to think about how to, as a couple, have habits. Is there any advice, like the thing that we get asked a lot is, hey, I am interested in pursuing development or I, man, I'm chasing growth and my partner They're not they're not yet on this page. Right. And our advice has tended to normally be, look, you've got to really focus on your growth journey and let it leave breadcrumbs for the person who, in their curiosity, decides to themselves make change. You can't force change on someone. I assume the same thing goes for habits. If someone has decided to really become more disciplined and interested in understanding their cues so that they can have better routines Uh, Is there is there any advice to the person who's like chosen that but is partnered with someone who has not yet evolved into a place of saying, yep, I want to take care of some bad habits?
1: No, I think that's a really, really good and really valuable and hard question. Right. Like when we start growing and our partner isn't isn't ready or they're not on the same path, what should we do? And here's the thing I would say. I think, I think your advice as a first step is exactly the right advice, right? To, to make sure that you – if you're moving forward, leave the breadcrumbs so that your, your partner can follow. But here's the other second thing that's important to re- remember is to make sure that your growth – does not become a punishment for the other person. Mm. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to reward them in their small wins. There's this thing called the science of small wins. And one of the things we know about how habits change is that they tend to change in small increments. Again, small little daily, daily changes. It doesn't matter what you have for lunch today, but what you have for lunch every day for the next 10 years has a huge impact on your health. And so the question is, as you're growing, are you creating rewards for your partner to grow along with you. And oftentimes, I'll be honest, the answer kind of can be no, right? Because yeah. I think for instance about myself. So, so I exercise a lot. My wife exercises way more than I do. She's great. She like, I mean, you know, she we're both in our mid 40s, so we're both normal people, but she's run like five marathons. She's training for another marathon right now. She's like a serious runner. And I will be and like oftentimes she wants me to to run with her. And and I try to even though she's faster than I am. But here's the one thing, and this became an issue at one point in our relationship, is that she would go out to do her long runs, right? And her long runs could take like two hours. And it was basically kind of a punishment for me because I would – it would be Saturday morning and the kids are going nuts. And Liz says, I got to go do my like 14-mile run. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll see you in two hours. And then she comes home from the run and she's exhausted. And I'm like, okay, so – so I took care of the kids for two hours and now I I get another like two hours while you're like showering and, and, and you know, getting ready. And and like I don't want to bemoan her this thing she's passionate about, right? And this is clearly healthy for her and healthy for our relationship. But like if it's a punishment for me for her to get better habits, it's not surprising that part of my brain is going to be like – Man, nuts to this. I don't want to run anymore. This seems like a sucker's game. Yeah. And so we had this conversation about it. Like, we actually need to make sure that when you're doing marathons, that this is something that's a reward for both of us, right? That if you go out and you run for two and a half hours, that it doesn't just sort of de facto fall on me to to like make sure everything's running okay. That like you need to sort of like, you know, set up set up breakfast the night ahead so that I can watch the kids, but like like you're taking some of the responsibility for the time when you're gone. Similarly. I travel a ton and and I've gotten into a a good habit of traveling. I, I can work while I'm traveling, but I mean, and I think this is true for you and Rachel too, like travel is a big part of like how we support our family. And I think for Liz, she was kind of resentful because this was a great habit for me. I could, I could make my life work while traveling, but that meant that I was gone half the time and she had all this parenting that she had to do on her own. And so we had to sit down and say, okay, how do we make sure that something that has a reward for me, because I'm getting the prestige and the attention and the money from going and giving speeches, that that's not a punishment for you? Because if it is a punishment for you, your brain is going to say, don't make this automatic. Don't make this easy. Don't let it happen. You also want to sit down and say, look, on my, on my process of growth, my growth you know, journey, am I punishing you? Am I making you feel bad about yourself? Am I going off and meditating and that means that you have like 45 minutes of – that you have to take care of the kids when they're going nuts? Am Am I suddenly caring about things, these newfound passions that you don't care about? Am I, am I threatening kind of the basis of our relationship? Cause, and I think you and I had talked about this last time we we visited that like oftentimes in a relationship, people have roles, right? And one of those roles is I make the money or I take care of the kids or I'm a caretaker. And, and those are fine roles to have, but they're roles that we should decide on rather than being forced into. And as people change and grow, do they threaten those roles, destabilize those roles without having a conversation about what that means.
0: Deciding on them together is like the biggest and, and, har- and hardest by the way, because in, in some ways the things roles wise that we, in our relationship or in any relationship that you become accustomed to because they have become habitual are hard to unwind and undo in part because they've just existed for the length of your relationship or because... I mean, a lot lot of times, too, there are echoes of societal expectations or your family of origin having dictated a little bit of how life should work. And I mean, in some of the instances for us, right, some of our habits in the earliest parts of our relationship were informed by other people's habits that we just accepted as our own without really asking a question if they served who we each were as individuals or the family unit we were trying to create. So, um ask that question but have
1: have that conversation together, right? That's exactly. You know, like I like you know, I grew up in a fairly traditional family. I mean, my mom's a lawyer, but my dad was also a lawyer, and and my dad earned most of the the income. And so I think the habit when I started my own marriage was this expectation that I would I would support our family. And that became an important part, totally unacknowledged and undiscussed, of how we divvied up responsibilities and roles and the burdens we place on, our, on ourselves. And and that's a fine thing to do. That's a fine s- structure to have. But you want it to be a structure you decide on rather than a, a habit that's just handed handed down to you without you actually thinking or choosing it. So important. And, and one of the things, you, you know, I have these two friends, Greg and Caitlin, whom I love, And um, they found that they were falling into these gender roles that like Caitlin would always wash the dishes and Greg would take the trash out. And, and it really bugged Caitlin. Like she really did not like it. And so they sat down and they were like, okay, let's divvy up housework. And Caitlin said, I like washing the dishes. And Greg said, I like taking out the trash. And they were like, oh, okay, that's what we'll do. (laughs) And and they were both fine (laughs) with it as soon as they decided it. But it was the fact that they hadn't decided that it felt like they were, they were falling into these gendered roles that, that, you know, sort of without choosing that that's what would bothered them once they talked about it, it went away.
0: Challenge to listeners. Ch- yeah. Challenge to listeners. Sit down and have a conversation about which of the habitual things that happen inside of your household you feel like were foisted upon you or were things that you because of a conversation in partnership decided to actually have as habits for your life. It'll be a hard conversation potentially, but one that if you can get to the answer may fundamentally change the way that you carry the weight of the habit in your life.
1: Absolutely. And the next part of that is identify the ones that you like to do. Identify what the reward is that it provides for you. And the ones that you're, you don't like to do or that your spouse doesn't like to do, figure out how you can reward them for doing it. Ah. Right? So, So like if I – there are some things that I do that – my wife, Liz – Didn't even know I didn't like to do, right? She just assumed that it's, that I was doing them because I liked them. And it wasn't until I said, no, I don't, I don't like doing this thing. I don't like doing our taxes, right? I, I do them because somebody has to do the taxes, (laughs) but I don't enjoy doing it. Once I was able to say that to her and she said, oh, okay, I'll tell you what, wait, like when you finish the taxes, we are going to make out, right? Like, like, like we're going to get the taxes done Sunday night, make out session. Like, it's a really nice thing. It makes doing the taxes so much easier, And it's important to understand what those rewards are that people need.
0: You cannot do your taxes five times a month. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, So I do want to, I do want to, before we run out of time, I know you have uh, things that you have to go do, as is always the case. But let's talk for a second about this awesome show that you are doing called How To. Uh, We were, Rachel and I, beneficiaries of having a guest in studio who had a how-to question of Charles and got to, with some of our expertise in having made a jump that he was considering, give some advice in real time. Um, But give a, a better sell of what it is that the idea of the show is and what it is that you're trying to help
1: people with in how to. Absolutely. And I will say that was one of my favorite episodes. Thank you guys so much for doing that. And and the guy who was on the show who was trying to figure out whether he should move to another city um in order to support his girlfriend. Basically, your guys' advice convinced him to do it, which is great. Like he uh he was completely at peace with it. So so the idea behind the show, it's called How to with Charles Duhigg. And and it started with this basic kernel which was I wrote this book, The Power of Habit, about the science of habit formation, and I started getting all these letters from people. And, and the letters, some of them would make sense, right? Like, how do I change this habit? How do I change that habit? But some of them were like things that I'm not qualified at all to answer. And I really wanted to help people figure out the answers to their problems and their questions. And so we thought, look, what if we came up with a show? where somebody would uh, a listener would call in with a question or problem and we would find an expert to help them work through and get an answer. And then when we started playing with it what we realized was actually oftentimes the thing that's most useful to listen to is not just the advice, it's the story behind the advice. Mm. Right? So so you could tell me you could tell me how you and Rachel figured out, you know, how to work through an issue in your in your marriage that you decided, you know, Dave is going to take out the trash and Rachel's going to do, do the dishes. And you could tell me that. And, and maybe I could take that home and I could try that out on my own. But if I hear the story behind how you guys came to that place, if I hear your story about how you struggled through a series of problems and you came up with basically a big idea, which is we sit down and we communicate and this is what we communicate about. And this is how we communicate about it. If I can hear your story then not only am I going to be able to remember it because we remember stories a lot better than anything else, I'm actually going to understand your life. And so the whole idea of the show is that in every show, we have a listener who is written in with a problem. And if anyone listening right now has a problem that they need help with, they can send it to slate.com. Every single email gets read. Every single email gets responded to. A bunch of those people come on the show. We take someone who has a problem. We find an expert to help them. And then we have the expert and the and the listener talk to each other and tell their stories work through the problem together and by listening to the stories and figuring out what the solution is what the audience gains is this insight into into how to do things better, right? So we, uh, we're we taping one actually today called How to Decide Who to Vote For. We're having David Axelrod and Mike Murphy who are these two big political consultants. Uh, Axelrod ran um, Obama's campaign, Mike Murphy worked on, on George W. Bush's campaign, and we have this guy who's a swing voter who's saying, I don't know how to how to decide who to vote for. And they're going to literally listen to a story and give him advice. We we um we had we had another one. Um, we had Ben Folds, who's this big musician. A guy had just gotten out of a relationship. He wanted to write the perfect breakup song. He yes. had Ben Folds teach him how to write a breakup song. Another guy was an insomniac for like 10 years, and we had Andy Pudicombe, who's the head of head, who founded Headspace, this meditation app, tell him how to meditate so you can fall asleep. Or in your case, this guy who's trying to figure out, should I move to another city when I really don't want to, to support my girlfriend so she can go to vet school? And you and Rachel giving him advice on not only how he makes that decision, which Rachel was like, yeah, you should move, but also how do you move in a way to set yourself up for success? How do you do that? And listening to your story about moving to Austin, I think really helped that guy figure out if I'm going to move to Columbus to support my girlfriend in vet school, I need to do a whole bunch of other things to make sure that I'm moving for me as much as for her.
0: So good. I I love the idea. And I need Ben Folds to call me when we're done with this show, because I'd (laughs) like him to write me a song, not about breaking up, but something totally unrelated. Look, I wanted to have Charles on for a whole host of reasons, like most of them articulated so well in the last 45 minutes of conversation, but primarily because when I myself was stuck and I was looking for The reason why I found myself in a self-inflicted gully of my own creation, I was handed two books. The first book was this book of his, The Power of Habit, and the second was Mindset by Carol Dweck. And if you are someone who, for any reason, resonates with feeling like you can't get out of your own way, I write this in the conclusion of my own book. If you haven't done any work to understand what habits are and why they're an important thing to get a handle on... Do yourself a life-changing favor and start there. Read The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg as the first step. This man's work has truly affected my life. The legacy of the rest of my life is being written in real time, in part because of my ability to get a handle on my habits. And I appreciate the science... The, the genius, the fact that a Pulitzer Prize winning human being had a book that in 2012 was handed to me and allowed me to help get out of my own dang way. So, Charles, I'm so grateful for you existing on this planet, but also for coming on the show today to bless the listeners of the Rise Together podcast. Thank you, my man.
1: They, thank you. And that is like it is so it is so meaningful to hear you say that. And I, I'm so thank you so much. I really can't tell you how 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 great it is to hear you say that and to be on the show and thank you for, for sharing this with the people and sharing your story, like on a regular basis, you and Rachel sharing your personal stories about how you guys have changed. I think that's the most important thing is because it's, there is someone out there listening who's saying like, I want to change. I don't know if I can, I don't know how. And just knowing that someone like you has struggled with something similar and that you have found a path through, that means everything. So thank you, Dave. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Charles, so much for being here. Such (laughs) uh, an honor to have you on the show. And I know a great resource uh, for the folks that are listening. Everyone, do yourself the favor. If you... Uh, have not yet grabbed The Power of Habit. It is such a fantastic read. It is um, a thing that once you have this tool in your hands will help you understand why you do the things that you do. I promise you, you will have a breakthrough within the first five pages and it'll change the way you think about what you think about uh, he also, like I say, uh, we just were talking about it, has this show called How To on Slate. Listen to the show. Give it a listen. Um, more than anything, uh, I want to say thank you to Charles for giving us his time and his wisdom today.
1: No, thank you.
0: If you, the audience, like this episode, will you do both of us a favor? Will you take a picture of this podcast, put it up in your social media, and tag both me and Charles on social to let us know what you thought And if you really like the episode, man, tell a friend, tell someone who you think could benefit from hearing some of Charles's wisdom. Um, And do us this favor too, Uh, not that Charles is asking, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a really big deal to us, to uh, new people who are looking for the podcast to see that it is uh, something that has been subscribed to. Plus you get a notification every time a new episode comes out. We appreciate y'all being here today. Rachel Hollis and I will be back next week for another episode of the Rise Together podcast.